Hello, 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 and welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. First and foremost, I am so sorry if you happen to hear a lawnmower in the background at any point during this episode. I decided to start recording as soon as my neighbor decided it was time to mow their lawn, so that's where we're at right now. I'm doing my best to block it out. We should be okay, but if you happen to hear a brrrr come through, I am so sorry. Getting back on track, today we are doing a deep dive of another Netflix show and arguably one of the most successful Netflix shows and certainly a fan favorite, Stranger Things. Now, I don't know how many parts this will be. I'm trying to keep it to just two, but there's a lot of information and details I want to share with you. So it may just be three, but I'm trying to keep it to two. I just don't know. But today is part one of the Stranger Things deep dive. In this episode, I am going to be talking about everything leading up to the production of season one. Who made the show and why? What was the process like? What was the inspiration behind the show? How did casting go? And let me say the casting process was truly the most surprising to me. There was a lot of moving and shaking happening and a lot of people almost quit. It's all very, very juicy. And as you probably know already, volume one of season four will be airing on May 27th. Now, I know a lot of people have been confused thinking this was the last season. It is not. We will have volume one on May 27th. I believe volume two is coming sometime in July. And then there will be the finale season, which is season five. So we're not done yet. There's a lot to get into. So let's get started. Let's roll the sirens and get some caffeine going. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now, on with the show. Today, I'm like a boring old rock dad, I guess you could say. Like I'm drinking black coffee, but it's the Dead Sled X Rob Zombie coffee, so that makes me a little bit cooler. It was not intentional. I ran out of oat milk. I had too much cereal and I I just made bad decisions this week and I went through my oat milk way too fast. As I mentioned before, this is not my favorite coffee, but I have it. I have a bag of it and I was like, "Okay, we're doing a spoopy little episode. Let's get some spoopy coffee going." I just don't understand. Like maybe, honestly, I must be a pleb. I think I am. I've said time and time again, like I just don't get it with coffee. I don't understand why certain coffees are so expensive when they just taste like fucking mud. I don't get it. I have learned on this whole coffee tasting journey that I, much like my taste in television, enjoy consuming coffee, but it doesn't mean I enjoy consuming what some would say is good coffee. As anyone who has listened to my podcast for more than two episodes knows, I like Folgers. I like the shittiest coffee in the world. I love it. I think it's the best coffee. I've tried every bougie fucking expensive coffee ever and it just doesn't, it doesn't compare at all. It doesn't even come close. So if for some reason you take my taste in coffee seriously as if I'm some expert, please don't. Same thing with TV and film. I'm no expert. I'm just someone who likes what they like and I don't care if it's fancy as long as it tastes good then I vibe with it. Is this dude fucking rolling into my yard? Why is he so loud? Oh my god. I'm so sorry if you have to hear that. 
But anyways, I am drinking Dead Sled Rob Zombie collab coffee black with just a little bit of sugar and it's not the greatest, but it's doing the job. But I will say it is making me want Aroma Joes so, so fucking bad. If you have an Aroma Joes near you, pull up the website, type in your zip code, figure it out. Even if it's 30 minutes away, do yourself a favor, go to Aroma Joes. The menu is massive, so you need to prepare yourself to absorb it. As far as I know, the Aroma Joes that I've been to, the menu comes before your ordering place. You order at a window, not into a microphone, so you don't feel that crazy pressure, which is great. They have tons of flavors. They've got all sorts of fucking combos. They've got iced tea. They've got energy drinks. They've got good food. I would say they're probably on par with Starbucks prices, maybe a little bit lower, but please do yourself a favor. Try Aroma Joes. It is hands down the best coffee chain ever. There is no contest. Take your Tim Hortons and shove it up your ass. It's just, it doesn't beat it. It doesn't. Now that I've made my coffee affiliation stance known, is that even a phrase that makes sense? Probably not. Let's get into the Stranger Things deep dive. Stranger Things has received critical acclaim and numerous accolades for its writing, acting, directing, production values, visual effects, and its soundtrack. It has been nominated for a plethora of awards, including 31 primetime Emmys, and it has won six of those. I believe it has also won four Golden Globe Awards and three Grammy Awards and so many more. It is no secret that Stranger Things has amassed a loyal, cult-like following. The success has gone so far and beyond a television show. You can buy Hawkins Middle School merch. You can see painted murals dedicated to Barb. Halloween costumes will never be the same. Pink dresses and fucking egos everywhere. That costume isn't going away anytime soon. Your kids' kids will see it. They even had a very successful Halloween Horror Nights house. It was a staple. So how did we get here? How did a quirky little Netflix show about some rabble-rousing kids and government conspiracy theories go from zero to a hundred at such a rapid pace? To find the answers, let's break down Stranger Things from its germination. The idea of Stranger Things popped into the identical twin brothers Matt and Ross Duffer's mind when they were inspired by the 2013 film Prisoners. The film deals with the moral struggles a father goes through when his daughter is kidnapped. The brothers thought this core idea would be amazing if they expanded it over eight-ish hours in a serialized television show. They really honed in on the missing child angle of the film and have said that they wanted to introduce more childlike sensibilities to the story. As far as the villain goes, the brothers really wanted to play off the idea of a monster that eats people. Simple enough. And they thought that the combination of these ideas would lead to the best thing ever. In order to make a human devouring monster make sense in the Stranger Things universe, they had to figure out an origin for it. And the narrative that they had landed on was bizarre experiments that they had read about taking place in the Cold War, such as Project MKUltra, which gave the monster a scientific origin and not a spiritual one. Project MKUltra, if you don't know, was a top-secret CIA project where hundreds of fucking monstrous experiments went down. 
sometimes on unknowing U.S. citizens to assess the potential use of LSD and other drugs for mind control, information gathering, and psychological torture. It went on for about 20 years, 1953 until, I believe, 1973. Details about it all didn't become public until 1975, during a congressional investigation into widespread illegal CIA activities within the United States and around the world. So why were these tests being done? It was not for shits nor for gigs. No, 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 no. In the 1950s and 60s, in the height of the Cold War, the United States government feared that the Soviet, Chinese, and North Korean agents were using mind control to brainwash U.S. prisoners of war in Korea, so they wanted to perform experiments using psychedelic drugs, paralytics, and electroshock therapy to see if they could depattern their thoughts and essentially turn them into robot agents. Robot agents that were triggered by key words. Yeah, like a Bucky fucking Barnes, you heard that right. Longing, rusted, furnace, daybreak. 17, benign, 9, homecoming, 1, and freight car. That was the kind of shit that they thought they could pull off. Now, I am just a normal, average American Joe. So what the fuck do I know? Maybe there is a Bucky fucking Barnes and a Thanos out there somewhere, just underground waiting to attack. I don't know. I think that study specifically was like Operation Artichoke. I believe that's what they called it. I'm sure they were uh, researching so much more as well. Many of the tests were conducted at universities, hospitals, or prisons in the United States and Canada. Most of the tests took place between 1953 and 1964, but it's not clear how many people were involved with the tests. Some say 150. But the agency kept notoriously poor records and destroyed most of MKUltra documents. When I first heard that, my first instinct was like, wow, I'd really like to see those documents. And then I really sat in it and I thought about it and I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know any more. Please just stop with the information. I'm done. I'm good. Have some of it back. Take some of this information in my brain and just, just return it. Is there a return policy? I would like to know. There was one little nugget called Operation Midnight Climax, and it was an MKUltra project in which government-employed prostitutes, government-employed prostitutes, you, you heard that right, lured unsuspecting men to CIA, quote, safe houses, unquote, where drug experiments took place. The CIA dosed the men with LSD, and then, while at times drinking cocktails behind a two-way mirror, watched the drug's effects on the men's behavior. Recording devices were also installed in the prostitutes' rooms, and they were disguised as electrical outlets. So yes, let me just break that down again one more time in case it wasn't clear. It's a lot to process. Our government, our CIA, hired prostitutes, same prostitutes that they'd put in jail, right, to put on a show, to drug up a man, have her have sex with him, all while they watched and recorded and drank cocktails. It just gets worse. It just gets worse. 
Most of the Operation Midnight Climax experiments took place in San Francisco and Marin County, California, and New York City. And as you can imagine, now that you know that CIA agents were drinking pina coladas and watching prostitutes have sex with Johns, this was basically just one big party to CIA agents. They had barely any oversight, so they were free to do whatever they wanted. There was mental, physical, sexual abuse. It was insane. One agent even said, quote, Of course, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, and cheat, steal, deceive, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest, unquote. How disgusting. This was happening in our government. And like I said, part of me wishes I didn't know any of this. I like ignorance. Call me crazy. Call me a fucking sheep. I like ignorance. I know too much. I don't want to know anymore. Please just stop. Stop it. Now, to clarify, within the fictional Stranger Things timeline, MKUltra experiments started in Hawkins in 1953. In the late 1960s, a young woman named Terry Ives participated in the controversial experiments. As a test subject, Terry would take part in experiments involving psychedelic drugs and sensory deprivation. Eleven was born in 1971 and taken by Dr. Martin Brenner and was being experimented on until 1983. So that's the beginning of the Stranger Things timeline, and now we know how it relates to MKUltra. Obviously, the course of those events and experiments ranged over a wide period of time, so the brothers really had to hone in on an exact time for the show to take place in. The brothers decided that 1983 would be perfect because it was one year before the film Red Dawn came out, and Red Dawn is a film focused on all the Cold War paranoia. And now that the year and time period was officially decided, the inspirations came pouring in. The brothers were born in the 1980s, and they took their experiences from that decade and blended it with a heavy dose of 80s pop culture. We see a lot of the typical 80s movies motifs, if you will. The plans of the benevolent main characters are crushed, seemingly without motivation by one-dimensional bullies. Ruthless corporations and government agencies acting as antagonists. Adolescents and teenagers in dangerous, life-threatening situations. The protagonist is in danger in a rural, isolated setting. La 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 la. All the things. Movies like E.T. definitely seem to be a major inspiration. There's the riding of bikes and communication problems. Also, the poster for the series was created by Kyle Lambert, who drew inspiration from Drew Struzan, and he created the official poster for E.T., as well as Star Wars and Back to the Future and Indiana Jones. But mainly, E.T. was the biggest inspiration for the character Eleven. The brothers even instructed Millie Bobby Brown to act like E.T. and instructed the other characters to approach her as if she was an alien. And of course, there's the pink dress, obviously. We can't forget the iconic pink dress. There's other little things throughout the show that remind you exactly what era you are in. For example, Nancy and Steve are dressed up as Lana and Joel from Risky Business for the Halloween party. 
In season three, episode one, the song that plays when Billy enters the pool area is Moving in Stereo by the Cars, which is the same song that plays when Phoebe Cates emerges from the pool in that notorious scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And later in that same episode, Dustin mentions that his long distance girlfriend is, quote, hotter than Phoebe Cates, unquote. It's the teeny tiny things that show me how passionate these brothers are and how inspired they are by this era and by all of these influences. That matters to me. And also I can imagine for the older viewers that that nostalgia is fantastic, especially if you're watching it with your kids. That must be the most magical feeling. Going back to crazy little details, several characters in this show have the same name as famous actors and directors from the 80s. I don't know if this was on purpose, but it's still really cool. Some examples are Dustin for Dustin Hoffman, Lucas George Lucas, Steve Steven Spielberg. I don't know. I feel like this may be a coinkadink, but I feel like nothing in this show is on accident. The details are too detailed. The details are doing all of the detailing. Some also speculate that Hopper is named after Dennis Hopper, but I believe in another theory. Try and stay with me on this one. In the movie Predator, Dutch leads a team of soldiers on a rescue mission. While on this mission, they encounter a group of skinned Special Force soldiers. Dutch identifies one of them, saying that he knew the man. The man's name was Jim Hopper. Additionally, the first character killed on screen in Predator was named Hawkins. And Stranger Things, of course, takes place in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana. So I feel like that is where the name Hopper came from. Which also, in my mind, sort of unravels all of the named after famous directors and actors in the 80s, but I just don't know. Like I said, nothing is on accident in this show. And while we're on the subject of action horror films, along with a ton of nods to 80s pop culture, we obviously have a lot, a lot, a lot of nods to horror. And specifically, the king of horror himself, Stephen King. The plot, while also being kind of the stereotypical 80s movie kind of plot, is also pretty similar to the plot of It. You know, like a bunch of rascal kids fighting a monster. Basic, but you know, it's pretty similar. Also, weirdly, the brothers were supposed to direct It or something like that, and that fell through because they were not experienced enough. So that's kind of funny. I thought that was interesting. Eleven, you know, the girl with superpowers running from the secret military project, is an homage to Firestarter by Stephen King. Her getting nosebleeds all the time when she uses her powers is a nod to both Charlie's dad in Firestarter and Ripley in Alien. Also, sidebar, not Stephen King related. But the communicating through lights is a little hat tip to the classic sci-fi movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, in which the aliens use lights and sounds to communicate. Back to the king, there's a lot of little nods to him, like the font of the titles and the episodes is actually the same as the original 1980s editions of Stephen King novels, specifically Cujo and Christine. And there is a scene where the state trooper guarding the morgue is reading Cujo by Stephen King, so I thought that was pretty cool too. Just little details. Callahan, that's another nod to Stephen King, an obvious reference to Father Callahan from Salem's Lot and the Dark Tower books. Another obvious but little, you know, shout out to the King is that Steve Harrington is often referred to as King Steve. 
And my personal favorite nod to Stephen King was the character of Billy being designed after King's most infamous of villains, Randall Flagg. Flagg has that long wavy hair and the earring and is dressed in Canadian tuxedos always. And he's a massive fucking dick to say the least, which, you know, is Billy. There were also nods to other horror inspirations for the brothers. The most obvious of obvious for me personally was that iconic main theme, very clearly inspired by John Carpenter. The music in Stranger Things in general is just perfect. And I feel like it all kind of uh, is inspired by John Carpenter in one way or another. The character of Nancy, played by Natalia Dyer in Stranger Things, is an homage to the Nightmare on Elm Street Nancy. She dresses just like her, and her hair is oftentimes styled like her as well. Also, the setting up the traps for the creature is very reminiscent of the final showdown of Nancy and Freddy Krueger. There's also, like, posters and stuff for horror movies from the 80s, but again, I think that's just to remind us of the time period that we're in, but it's still super cool to see. In an interview, the brothers also admitted that they were inspired by the anime Elfin Lied, which was inspired by another classic anime, Akira, which is so cool. I definitely want to see those now just to see how it inspired the brothers from an anime to this TV show. I am definitely going to be on the hunt for both of those. So those were the inspirations for the show Stranger Things as we know it. But before the Duffer Brothers landed their deal with Netflix, they were rejected by over 15 networks. Most, if not all of these rejections were because this was a sci-fi show with kids being the main cast. Executives wanted the show to either be made for children or to have a story centered on Hopper investigating the paranormal occurrences in the town. The Duffer brothers refused to comply with these demands as they felt everything interesting about the story would be lost. The brothers knew what they had and they knew that the kids were crucial to the story, so luckily they never backed down. Matt and Ross Duffer had a close relationship since childhood and they work on all of their projects as a pair. They developed an obsession with film at a very early age. In the third grade, the brothers received a Hi8 video camera from their parents, and each summer they would use this camera to create their own feature-length film. Their first film was a feature-length adaptation of the trading card game Magic the Gathering. In high school, they developed an interest in genre and started creating horror films. No surprise there. While attending the Dodge College of Film and Arts, the brothers wrote and directed a few short films among them being a short called We All Fall Down. This film won Best Short at the 2005 Deep Ellum Film Festival in Dallas and gave the brothers some traction and notoriety. In 2007, they were given the opportunity to meet with the producer Mace Newfield, who had produced the film The Hunt for the Red October. Newfield took the brothers under his wing and guided them through their senior thesis project, which was a film titled Eater. This film also did very, very well. It was one of five films selected that represented their college at the annual first cut screening at the DGA. After college, they wrote the script for the post-apocalyptic horror film, Hidden. And with this film, they really tried to emulate the style of M. Night Shyamalan. The script was eventually acquired by Warner Brothers in 2011, and the Duffers directed the film in 2012. 
The film was released in 2015. However, due to changes at Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers was its distributor, the film did not see a wide release. And the Duffer brothers were unsure of their future at this point. This was a massive blow to them. To their surprise, television producer Donald DeLine approached them, impressed with Hidden Script, and offered them an opportunity to work on episodes of Wayward Pines alongside M. Night Shyamalan. Amazing how the universe kind of comes full circle, right? The brothers were happy to accept this, and they were mentored heavily by Shyamalan during the episode's production. By the time they finished Wayward Pines, they felt like they were ready to produce their own television series. And that's when the brothers put their asses in gear and prepared a script, along with a 20-page pitch book that showcased images, footage, and music from classic 1970s and 1980s films such as E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Poltergeist, Hellraiser, Stand By Me, Firestarter, Nightmare on Elm Street, Jaws, etc., etc., in order to establish the tone of the series. They also wanted this pitch book to resemble a Stephen King book, so it was like all the vibes all rolled into one. When the concept was first pitched, the series was presented as an anthology series, with a different story introduced each season. The original plan was for Eleven to die in season one. She was going to sacrifice herself to save her friends and the town, and that would be the end of her story. That would conclude season one, and it would end in that installment, Bye Bye Eleven. Could you even imagine? I'm glad that plan took a hard left. The creators took inspiration from Stephen King's It when it came to the show's development, since they toyed with the idea of a major time jump involving a brand new story. Because again, they were going into this thinking that it would be an anthology series, and at the time, that made a lot of sense, because shows like American Horror Story, True Detective, and Fargo were so incredibly popular, and they were very established before Stranger Things came to fruition. The show that they had pitched was titled Montauk, and this is the exact pitch that they would give. Montauk is an eight-hour sci-fi horror epic set in Long Island in 1980 and inspired by the supernatural classics of that era. We explore the crossroads where the ordinary meet the extraordinary. Emotional, cinematic, and rooted in character, Montauk is a love letter to the golden age of Steven Spielberg and Stephen King a marriage of human drama and supernatural fear. Damn, that's good marketing. I'd buy that. And yes, 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 the show was titled Montauk, as in, you know, Montauk, New York. Before the sci-fi series took on the name Stranger Things, they were going to have it set in Montauk and in the surrounding area of Long Island. Surprise, surprise, right? Truthfully, the location makes a lot of sense as a starting point for the brothers. Montauk was at the center of numerous conspiracy theories involving mysterious government experiments known as the Montauk Project. The Montauk Project was a theory that centered on secretive government experiments that took place in the 1980s at various locations within Montauk. Don't take a shot every time I fucking say Montauk. All I hear is the Bayside song. That's going to be stuck in my fucking head all day. Not a bad thing, though. Love that song. Anyways, the experiments were thought to surround time travel, mind control, and contact with unexplained species. 
There is a book written by Preston Nichols titled The Montauk Project. Nichols, along with a fella named Al Balik, Billick, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name, they claim to have repressed memories about being involved in the project as subjects. However, in the first chapter of the book, it says, quote, whether you read this as science fiction or nonfiction, you are in for an amazing story, unquote. They also described much of the content as, quote, soft facts, unquote. Fucking, what is a soft fact? Please enlighten me. The work has been characterized as fiction because the entire account was most likely fabricated by Preston Nichols to some extent. We will circle back to Montauk in either next episode or part three, whichever it lands in. But we are coming back to Montauk. Keep that in the back of your cranium. Pack that away. That's a rabbit hole we can't dive down just yet. We're going to save that for later. The brothers decided to move the location to the fictional town of Hawkins, and of course, a name change was a must at this point. As I previously mentioned, they brought the show to over 15 different networks and were rejected. But in 2015, Dan Cohen, the VP of 21 Laps Entertainment, brought the script to his colleague, Sean Levy. They subsequently invited the Duffer Brothers to their office and purchased the rights for the series, giving full authorship of it to the Duffer Brothers. After reading the pilot, the streaming service Netflix purchased the whole season for an undisclosed amount of moolah, but we can only imagine how fat that check was. Actually, probably not that fat, but good for the Duffer Brothers at that point. I'm sure they, you know, they lived off that for a little bit. In April 2015, the series was announced for a planned 2016 release by Netflix. Netflix sidestepped the idea of an anthology and put their faith in a full-blown series with a continued focus on the characters that were introduced in season one, which was obviously a very solid move, Netflix. Good work. The streaming service predicted that the viewers would feel connected to the younger characters and fall in love with them and feel invested in their lives and their stories, so they didn't want to rip viewers away from them. As we know now, they predicted right. The Duffer brothers stated that at the time they had pitched to Netflix, the service had already gotten recognized for its original programming, such as House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, with well-recognized producers behind them. And so Netflix was ready to start giving upcoming producers like them a chance. It all worked out perfect. The timing was great. Now that the brothers were signed on with Netflix, the Duffer brothers were not limited to a typical 22-episode format, and they opted for eight episodes. The brothers had mentioned previously that it would be very hard to tell a cinematic story with 22 episodes. That would be way too many. It would have been way too messy. With eight episodes, they could tell the story the way they wanted to without adding any extra fat. If they were limited to a two-hour movie, they would have to focus on just the monster, and it wouldn't have the same characterization, whereas with eight episodes, it gave them just enough time to focus on the characterization, and also they could focus on narrative development. They wanted the first season to feel like a really big movie. They wanted to tie up loose plot lines to satisfy viewers, but they also wanted to leave us wanting more and have us asking the right questions, like could there be something more here? What is the mythology here? They wanted to leave enough threads dangling to keep Netflix on the hook to make more seasons appealing. And let's talk about appealing. Let's talk about the appealing soup. The plot 
was the broth, but the spices, the seasoning, had to be the characters. So the brothers brought Levy and Cohen in as executive producers to start casting and filming. As casting was started immediately after Netflix greenlit the show and prior to the scripts being fully completed, this allowed some of the actors to take on the roles to reflect into the script. The casting of the young actors for Will and his friends had been done just after the first script was completed, and subsequent scripts incorporated aspects from these characters. The first decision that had to be made about casting, really the first decision after the show was greenlit, the brothers knew that they had to get Carmen Cuba on board as casting director. Cuba has casted a ton. She casted The Butterfly Effect, Magic Mike, The Martian, The Florida Project, Bad Hair, Queen and Slim, Hillbilly Elegy, The Shy, just a wide variety of projects. She also is currently working on casting an untitled Madonna biopic or biopic, whatever you call it. And both Madonna and Diablo Cody are involved. So I am very excited to see what that turns into. Cuba's goal was to cast authentic kids, a group of friends where everyone is different. They're outsiders and they, of course, had to have chemistry. The first person cast may actually surprise you. Gatton Matarazzo read for the role of Mike and the casting team fell in love with him after watching a single audition tape. After they saw Finn Wolfhard was a better fit for Mike, they tried Gatton as Lucas, which he also nailed. But when they tried him out as Dustin, all bets were off. He fit perfect. Gatton was really authentic and he was hilarious. The casting team saw him like stretching in the waiting room and his shoulders actually touch when he stretches. Like yes, shoulder to shoulder. Lots of people with his disorder have underdeveloped or missing collarbones and this stretching opened up the conversation about what his disorder actually was. And when he explained it to them, this made him even more appealing. Gatton had previously said that his condition held him back from getting roles, but the brothers decided to highlight it rather than hide it. The Duffer brothers asked if this was okay to incorporate it into the script and if bullying scenes were okay. Gatton agreed because he said it was realistic. I don't know the exact order of who got cast after that, but the brothers did say Finn Wolfhard was easy to fill the role of Mike. He was a shoo-in. He was already a fanatic for 80s movies. He knew them well. He also recorded his audition tape from his bed because he was really sick and his camera was blurry and out of focus. It was not the best audition tape. Luckily, he had some other audition tapes out there that the team got to watch and they thought he was perfect. However, Finn almost quit. He almost did not take on this role because of the movie It. He was cast and the movie seemed like a way better role to take on in comparison to the then unknown Stranger Things from these then unknown Duffer Brothers. Luckily, filming for It got delayed, which worked out perfectly, and he was able to take on both of the roles. Sidebar, can I say he's fucking annoying now? Can I? Now that he's 19 and like a grown-up, he irritates me to no fucking end. He seems so pretentious and has that fucking pick-me energy. Like, yeah, bro, we get it. You like indie underground underground music and you think Marvel movies are ruining modern cinema. Shut the fuck up. 
He never actually said any of those things exactly, but that's along the lines of his vibe. All right, I'm done. I've been waiting to say that, but like he was 12 and I can't fucking shit on a 12 year old, right? But you know, he's an adult now. So I throw tomatoes. Moving on, Millie Bobby Brown was cast as the iconic 11, of course. When Millie sent in her casting tape from London, Cuba described it as very emotional and intense and apparently had a lot of tears. Millie ended up moving forward and had a Skype meeting with the casting team, and she did the whole interview in an American accent. The team was blown away by her, and they didn't even realize she wasn't using her British accent until the very end. Over 200 girls auditioned for the role of Eleven, and when it came down to the final decision, her audition and fantastic Skype meeting was plenty for her to get cast, but... She also got a shout out from Stephen King, who loved Millie on the show Intruders. Millie played a character named Madison, and it was an extremely complex role. And I mean, come on, even if her audition was shit, I'm sure if Stephen King was like, hey, this girl, this girl's it. The brothers would have been like, done and done. Stephen King said so, so we're going to do it. Ms. Bobby Brown was actually on the verge of quitting acting before she sent in her audition tape. She had just received a very painful rejection for the role of Liana Mormont on Game of Thrones. Could you imagine anyone besides that girl? I don't know the actress's name, but she's going to be in uh, the television show for The Last of Us. I mean, no one else could play her. She looks just like Millie Bobby Brown, but the personality, the, the thunder in her voice, no one else could have done it. But anyway, Millie luckily decided to give this audition one last try and her life changed because of it. When she was cast as 11, she was actually 11 years old, which was very fitting. And she actually shaved her head for the role. Her mother filmed the entire cutting session and her father was so distraught by this event, he literally couldn't bear to watch it. He was in tears. The video is actually up on YouTube if you want to give that a watch. Caleb McLaughlin auditioned for the role of Lucas Sinclair six months after his run on Broadway as young Simba in The Lion King. Much like Millie, he had dealt with numerous painful rejections within those six months, and he had told his mom, I don't want to do this audition. I don't want to do this anymore. But ultimately, he decided to give it one more go, and he nailed it. Like I said, Gatton was great as Lucas, but Caleb fits so much better in their eyes. He could really pull off the intelligent, analytical, grounding, pragmatic friend in the group. You know, he was the contrarian. He was the one with his feet on the ground. Why are we helping this alien girl who likes egos? What are we doing here, guys? This doesn't, this doesn't seem like a good way to go. Noah Schnapp originally auditioned for the role of Mike, but the casting team wanted to bring him in to audition for the role of Will. Noah was not happy about this. On the day he went into audition, it was rainy, he was muddy from the rain, he had a migraine, he was tired, it was just a bad day for him. Due to all of this, he did not give his best performance, but the team really believed in him and wanted him for the role of Will, so they moved forward with him. Before working together on the show, Gatton Matarazzo and Caleb McLaughlin already knew each other. They both met while starring in different productions on Broadway at the same time. As I said, Caleb was in The Lion King and Gatton was in Les Mis. Even Sadie Sink, who comes on in season two, she starred in Annie and she knew the boys. Casting a shit ton of kids was definitely an interesting and complicated process. 
The Duffer brothers estimated that they went through about a thousand different child actors for the roles. Actors auditioning for the children's roles read lines from Stand By Me, as well as some lines from season one. But Stand By Me, I thought, was very fitting because that film was a massive inspiration for the show. Joe Keery originally did the standard audition tape for Jonathan, and he didn't hear anything back for months. When he did hear back finally, he was asked to try another role, the role of Steve Harrington, and he absolutely nailed it. The team loved his disheveled, now trademark hair, and his personality fit the role perfectly. In the pilot script, Steve Harrington was written as the biggest douchebag on the planet going so far as to sexually assault Nancy Wheeler. The character changed when Joe got on board because he turned out to be much more likable and charming than the Duffer brothers originally had envisioned, which I think made all the difference in the show when they took the actors and their personal take on the role and their personalities and they injected it into the characters on the show. It made it feel so much more real. Natalia Dyer was cast as Nancy Wheeler, who is studious and rule-abiding. Natalia Dyer had shared that she was super stressed about moving out of her dorm. She was having a bad day, much like Noah Schnapp was. And she almost didn't even go to the audition. But of course she did go and afterwards had an even worse day because she thought she did horrendous at the audition. But the casting team loved her. Charlie Heaton was cast as Jonathan. Charlie played the drums and did a few tours with his band, but as the band was falling apart, he started auditioning for commercials. That led him to an agent, which led to more auditions, and one of those auditions was for Stranger Things. He sent in his audition tape and then found out that they wanted to Skype him while he was at a burger shop. The casting team mentioned to him that they weren't necessarily looking for known actors. And Charlie told them how much he related to the role and he was from a working class background and really into music. The team and Charlie really connected and so he was flown over to the US for a screen test and got the role very quickly. Now, Kuba and the casting team may have decided that they didn't want known actors for the kids. They just wanted the authenticity. But they wanted big-known actors, primarily from the 80s, to play the adults, to draw in a diverse audience. As we know now, that was a massive success and a very smart move. Kuba was really gung-ho for Winona Ryder to play Joyce, and the brothers were like, yeah, maybe, yeah, she was, you know, great in the 80s, sure, maybe. But the brothers said that they really wanted Naomi Watts or Marissa Tomei for the role. But Kuba was really, really set on Winona, and she was trying to get everyone on board. The brothers listened to their genius casting director, and they decided that she had this amazing energy, and they really missed seeing her on the big screen. So they wanted to give her a shot. Her casting process was obviously not a normal situation because she is the Winona Ryder. Instead of an audition tape, she had tea with the production unit and the brothers, and they just talked for hours. Ryder praised that the show's multiple storylines required her to act for Joyce as if she's out of her mind, but she's actually kind of onto something. And after their little tea party, the producers and the brothers had so much faith in her. They really thought that she could pull off this difficult role. 
One of the producers even said she could retch up the emotional urgency and find layers and nuance and different sides of Joyce. So all in all, the team was happy to cast her. David Harbour was cast as the troubled and complex Jim Hopper, chief of Hawkins Police Department. He was still grieving the loss of his young daughter, Sarah, who died of cancer and healing the wounds of his divorce and battling alcoholism. This is a really heavy character to take on. This is a lot of moving parts. And the Duffer brothers had their hearts set on Ewan McGregor or Sam Rockwell to really hone in on the show's star power. But Cuba, again, was very adamant, very insistent on David Harbour, and the brothers give her full credit for pushing him. The brothers, again, put their faith in their casting director, and it was for the better. Harbour himself was thrilled by the script and the chance to play a broken, flawed anti-hero character. These characters were also authentic feeling, just as Cuba and the Duffer brothers wanted. And that combination of attention to detail, the brothers' experiences, Cuba's incredible experience as a casting director, and the actors injecting their own personality and bringing in their experiences and inspirations for their character created this really special brew of uniqueness. And that was a really promising starting point for Stranger Things. Thank you again for listening in. This was a lot of work, but it was so much fun. I enjoy learning the ins and outs and secrets and tidbits and all of the other words of shows that I like. Learning the inspirations behind this show and learning how it evolved so much before the first season even began is insane. I cannot wait to get part two up. That's when we're really going to dive into the show itself, the production, the behind the scenes facts, the conspiracies, the controversies, all of it. I have a very busy week, but I'm going to try and get that up as soon as I possibly can. I definitely want it up before the premiere of the new season. I'm going to try and push for that. I think I can do it. So stay tuned for that. Today, it brings me zero pleasure to spotlight Planned Parenthood. Not because Planned Parenthood is bad, but because unless you've been living under a rock, you know that here in America, women's rights are being launched back 50 years. Because a bunch of religious, fanatic, corrupted dinosaurs, mostly ones with crusty, dusty cocks shriveled between their legs, sitting in our Supreme Court, decided women's bodily autonomy is just not the vibe. If I seem a bit unhinged and a bit fucking feral, that's because I am. This is a really disturbing situation that we find ourselves in. But as, again, you probably know if you haven't been living under a rock, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is um, looming upon us. And if you think women were crazy before, you haven't seen anything yet. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. No, sir. That being said, if you want to know what you can possibly do, PlannedParenthoodAction.org is a fantastic resource. They have an entire breakdown that is very digestible of Roe v. Wade, and they also explain what it means for us when and if it gets overturned. They also have ways to get involved. They share marches happening in your area, local organizations, local officials, and local events. 
And of course, there is always the option to donate if you are capable and comfortable doing so. If you ever wanted to donate to anything, this is the place and this is the time. Any amount helps. 80% of Americans want abortion to be legal. 80 fucking percent of this country. Let that sink in. Thank you for listening. Please check out protests in your area. Bring your friends and stay safe, stay hydrated, and stay strong. <laughs>